First, we have author Neil Gaiman reading his poem, A Writer's Prayer. Here we go. This was something that I wrote probably in about 1989. I could see there were two futures, and it was a writer's prayer. And I wrote, O Lord, let me not be one of those who writes too much, who spreads himself too thinly with his words, diluting all the things he has to say like butter spread too thinly on his toast or watered milk in some worn-out hotel. But let me write the things I have to say and then be silent till I need to speak. O oh Lord, let me not be one of those who writes too little, a decade man between each tale or more, where every word becomes significant and dread replaces joy upon the page. Perfection is like chasing the horizon. You kept perfection, gave the rest to us. So let me know when I should just move on. But over and above those two mad specters of parsimony and profligacy, Lord, let me be brave. And let me, while I craft my tales, be wise. Let me say true things in a voice that's true. And with the truth in mind, let me write lies. This is something that I wrote for a book of photographs of authors. These are not our faces. This is not what we look like. Do you think Gene Wolfe looks like his photograph in this book? Or Jane Yolen, or Peter Straub, or Diana Wynne-Jones? Not so. They're wearing play faces to fool you. But the play faces come off when the writing begins. Frozen in black and silver for you now, these are simply masks. We who lie for a living are wearing our liar faces, false faces made to deceive the unwary. We must be. For if you believe these photographs, we look just like everyone else. Protective coloration. That's all it is. Read the books. Sometimes you can catch sight of us in there. We look like gods and fools and bards and queens, singing worlds into existence, conjuring something from nothing, juggling words into all the patterns of night. Read the books. That's when you see us properly, naked priestesses and priests of forgotten religions, our skins glistening with scented oils, scarlet blood dripping down from our hands, bright birds flying out from our open mouths. Perfect we are and beautiful in the fire's golden light. There was a story I was told as a child about a little girl who peeped in through a writer's window one night and saw him writing. He'd taken his false face off to write and had hung it behind the door for he wrote with his real face on and she saw him and he saw her. And from that day to this, nobody has ever seen the little girl again. Since then, writers have looked like other people, even when they write. Though sometimes their lips move, and sometimes they stare into space longer and more intently than anything that isn't a cat. But their words describe their real faces, the ones they wear underneath. This is why people who encounter writers are rarely satisfied by the wholly inferior person that they meet. I thought you'd be taller, or older, or younger, or prettier, or wiser. They tell us words or wordlessly. This is not what I look like, I told them. This is not my face. Next, we have Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown. I'll read a poem for you. Four day in the morning. My mother grew morning glories that spilled onto the walkway toward her porch because she was a woman with land who showed as much by giving it color. 
She told me I could have whatever I worked for. That means she was an American. But she'd say it was because she believed in God. I am ashamed of America and confounded by God. I thank God for my citizenship in spite of the timer set on my life to write these words. I love my mother. I love black women who plant flowers as sheepish as their sons. By the time the blooms unfurl themselves for a few hours of light, the women who tend them are already at work. Blue. I'll never know who started the lie that we are lazy, but I'd love to wake that bastard up at 4 a.m. in the morning, toss him in a truck, and drive him under God past every bus stop in America to see all those black folk waiting to go work for whatever they want. A house, a boy to keep the lawn cut, some color in the yard. My God, we leave things green. That's so powerful. I mean, I think it really speaks to the power of poetry because it says so many things. I mean, to me, and I know to you, it's something else. Well, Those flowers are real. I grew up with them um, in front of this area, this sort of flower bed area in front of our house um, near the porch. They were always really interesting to me. And I never know uh, where a poem is going to go when I start a poem. So I think I just started somewhere on on the music of thinking about, about music, I mean literally that. The lines come to me and I write them down because they come to me as music might, like as sounds might, and I'm somehow attracted to those sounds, much more attracted to those sounds than I am aware of what I'm saying. And after writing them down, I sort of become aware of what I'm saying as I'm writing. And uh, as I become aware of what I'm saying, I realize uh, I'm writing about my mom, Uh, but not just about my mom, as you mentioned, about nation, about what it means to be a son, about race, um, about the fact of vernacular, you know, I noticed this moment in the poem where, uh, in the in a very uh, American uh, vernacular, I write, "She told me I could have whatever I worked for," which is, you know, even ending the sentence on the four seems to, you know, what I mean, to point toward a certain kind of American idiom of speech. And so, and then after that, um, I say that means she was an American, which sort of doubles up at that point or triples up maybe at that point in its meaning. So that's the kind of thing that sent me toward writing the poem. There is a, a figure in this poem I've always been interested in. And it's a literal thing that I've always seen whenever I've had to, for whatever reason, be up early in the morning at four or five, you know, in the morning, there are already people on their way to work. And it is true uh, in the cities where I've lived, when I look at, um, when I'm passing, when I'm driving and I'm passing train stops or bus stops, those people who have to, who seem to need to be at work the earliest are often Black people. They're the people who, um, who are doing so many things before we get to work so that all those things are already done or have already started. Uh, and so I think something about all of that just came together in this poem. And now we hear from U.S. Poet Laureate Ada Lamone. The poem that I has been coming to me lately, uh, primarily because of the sort of where we are right now as a globe, as a universe, as a species. And I wonder sometimes what it is to have hope or to even want to be where you are right now. 
despite the suffering that's all around you. And I think that's something that's a core uh, of my work, something that I'm always trying to work through and work with. Um, and so I call this poem sort of an apocalyptic love poem uh, called The Conditional. Say tomorrow doesn't come. Say the moon becomes an icy pit. Say the sweet gum tree is petrified. Say the sun's a foul black tire fire. Say the owl's eyes are pinpricks. Say the raccoon's a hot tar stain. Say the shirt's plastic ditch litter. Say the kitchen's a cow's corpse. Say we never get to see it. Bright future, stuck like a bum star, never coming close, never dazzling. Say we never meet her, never him. Say we spend our last moments staring at each other, hands knotted together, clutching the dog, watching the sky burn. Say it doesn't matter. Say that would be enough. Say you'd still want this, us. Alive, right here, feeling lucky. And I think it's really an important thing to consider because what I think the danger is when we are faced with reality, and if we want to be clear eyed and intelligent and look at the science and understand really what is happening to our planet, I think the danger in that sort of pulling in of that information and absorbing it is to fall down the well. And what happens if we all just give up, right? I mean, we're sort of seeing that on some levels where people are saying, well, it's all going to burn anyway. So why does it matter, right? Like that's that, that kind of thinking feels very that nihilistic thinking feels very dangerous to me. And so I always want to bring it back to like, what is it to hold scary, frightening, you know, even overwhelmingly terrifying thoughts within us, but then also have some seed of hopefulness, some seed of acceptance and surrender to that there can be beauty. And maybe there's even more beauty now as we see it shifting and changing and maybe slipping away from us. There's moments in my work where I've realized I'm trying to get at something. And then instead of trying to find an answer, I think I ask more questions. Um, and I think that is uh, very much in the poem, um, The Vulture and the Body, which has to do with when I was for a while, we were trying to figure out if we wanted to have a child um, to bring someone into this world. Um, and then we decided that we did. And then uh, I found out that I couldn't have a child. Um, and so this is in the middle of fertility treatments and this kind of, and I, again, it was sort of a, a feeling within me that how do I, how do I pace these things together in a way that makes sense in my mind? Um, and of course, the only way I could do that was through language. Um, this is the vulture and the body. On my way to the fertility clinic, I passed five dead animals. First, a raccoon 
with all four paths to the sky, like he's going to catch whatever bullshit load falls on him next. Then a grown coyote, his golden-furred body soft against the white cement lip of the traffic barrier, trickster no longer, an eye closed to what's coming. Close to the water tower that says Florencio, which means I'm near Cincinnati, but still in the bluegrass state, and close to my exit, I see three dead deer, all staggered, but together, and I realize as I speed past in my death machine that they are a family. I say something to myself between a prayer and a curse. How dare we live on this earth? I want to tell my doctor how we all hold a duality in our minds, futures entirely different, footloose or forged. I want to tell him how lately it's enough to be reminded that my body is not just my body, but that I'm made of old star, and so's he. And that last Tuesday, I sat alone in the car by the post office and just was for a whole hour no one knowing how to find me until I got out the sound of the car door shutting like a gun and mailed letters, all of them saying, thank you. But in the clinic, the sonogram wand showing my follicles, he asks if I have any questions and says things are getting exciting. I want to say, but what about all the dead animals? But he goes quicksilver and I'm left to pull my panties up like a big girl. Some days there is a violent sister inside of me and a red ladder that wants to go elsewhere. I drive home on the other side of the road going south now. The white coat has said I'm ready and I watch as a vulture crosses over me heading toward the carcasses I haven't properly mourned or even forgiven. What if instead of carrying a child, I am supposed to carry grief? The great black scavenger flies parallel now, each of us speeding, intently, and driven toward what we've been taught to do with death. And here's activist, feminist, and writer Marge Piercy. The first is language has shaped my life, works in my business, how I've made house food, machines, clothing, taxes happen every month. Words are pointers to fact and lies. Words are how we shape stories that map my own and others' lives. Words go back and forth between us, carrying love and promises, anger and memories we cherish off key. Words jumble themselves into rich nonsense as I sleep, as vows, are vows sacred or just shaped air? When I lie down at final time, will I speak last words or just shut up and let silence have its way? Who can hold them? What can save them? When my mother died, when my grandmother died, all those memories I never got to catch and keep vanished to dust smokes, floating in a skein of silver moonlight and gone. Maybe I'm a poet in part because I want to seize all those memories that lit 
and vanish and seal them into the perfect resonance jewels of amber, moments transfixed and perspective like Jurassic wasps. Questions I never thought to ask in childhood, hang like dead birds around my neck. Never will I know my great-grandfather, the rabbi's first name, or what his wife was like. How did Grandmother Hanna get along with her mother? Was that who told her all those tales of golems and dibbics she passed on to me, more precious than the doll clothes she sewed from scraps of old dresses? They both told stories, but never enough. Parts their lives edited out, too caked with old blood, too harsh in the mouth like lie. Even though I read 40 or 50 books, my private memories will ride on the wind away like milkweed fluff. Can't you hear them? Listen carefully every morning, afternoon, night. Hear the crying of children yanked from their mothers, torn from fathers by brutal strangers without explanation, without pity, without mercy, locked away in crowded dorms with predators and other kids who know no more than they do. My French husband was taken from his parents when they fled the Nazis into Switzerland. He was scarred for life, always convinced his parents loved his younger brother more than him. Kids think that their parents could have kept them, wonder what they did to get locked up. Will they ever again see their mothers? The government judges them so trivial, why bother with accurate records? I hear them crying like hungry birds. I hear their terror and pain like distant thunder rumbling. In cages they huddle. Such pain won't discipline. Won't discipline. Such pain won't dissipate, but sinks into our names and brains, our history. This is our legacy. How will they curse us? The third and fourth generations, the ones that survived the death we left them. How could we explain the world on fire? Species wiped out daily, oceans of more plastic than fish. That we let a corrupt man stomp refugees, fleeing rape, murder, and hunger. That we let him set blazes no one could put out. We saw the cliff ahead. We were well warned. We took everyone over. This was how our world ends, in lies and greed, vast and numerous maggots dining on the corpse of hope. Now we hear from writer and translator E.J. Ko. I'm going to read a part about my grandmother, Kumiko, who's my father's mother and the grandmother who raised me. And it's a little bit about her time at Cheju Island and when her and her parents were hiding out in the mountain at the time. And her father 
to check on their friends and neighbors, comes down the mountain, and he hasn't returned for several days now. When Kumiko and her mother came down the mountain, the island was scorched. They passed through burnt villages, their voices lodged in their throats. Many of the dead could not be found, their bodies tossed over cliffs, hidden away in caves were chopped into bits, signs of covering up. Mothers cupped the air with their hands holding the missing faces of their husbands and sons. Their wailing and screaming filled the hearts of all who sifted through the remains. Teeth, hair, dead horses and pigs, then mosquitoes. The smoke reddened the sun. They covered their mouths or they would chase the corpses. There were children, the girls Kumiko played with, and women and men lying with limbs bent over each other, splayed across the road. Tens of thousands of them idle along collapsed terraces where the islanders once danced, pumping with life. It was Kumiko who crossed the road over a bridge and came to a part of the ground soaked in blood. When she asked after her father, somebody pointed to this ground. She saw nothing except the many faces around her, mouths wide and sullen. One islander, a grandmother, said to her, Your father was captured at the bottom of the mountain and dragged into a demonstration. She explained that a demonstration was a public display. A group of men, unfed and irate, corralled a crowd together. They put on such displays on behalf of the country and on higher orders foregoing restraint. What evil was born out of demonstrations? Then where is he? Kumiko asked. The grandmother opened her palm toward the ground. Here, looking closer, flesh and bone, gristle mistaken for bark and debris between the stones. At once the road became vivid, and Kumiko recognized her father. Road, father, road. They stoned him until he was gravel. The grandmother said as though she were not speaking to Kumiko, but a deity who had come down from the mountain to judge her for the truth. Many of us stoned him to prove our innocence. We stoned our own again and again. They stoned him overnight. They pitched blunt rocks harder over days for sport until finally boredom before the body was pulverized. What was exchanged between the police and the groups of men and the islanders, between the rocks and the bones, between the body and the road? What was supposed to be understood? Though they did not know it, the days that Kumiko and her mother spent hiding on the mountain were given a name. Such were the questions raised by the Jeju Island Massacre of April 3rd, 1948. And here's performance poet Max Stossel.
of how when two boxers get too close to hit each other, they hug each other and not because they love each other. Because when two people get too close, it becomes too hard to strike each other, hard not to smell the humanity on one another. It's confusing to see our reflection in our enemy's eyes. Helps us start to recognize where our actions might be misaligned with the identities that we've defined. And yeah, I loved that. That was one where as I started writing it, like just it's fun to be in an analogy working through a phrase, unraveling and discovering of all the new details of truth inside of a metaphor. And that really felt like one of them of in this fight, like that hug and that hug, not because, oh, we're all getting along. No, it's just like, there's nothing else to do, but hug more like right here in the fight. And that just felt poignant for where certainly where America was at. And I think a lot of the world is really going through partially because of social media, these very big polarizations of political perspective and of being harder and harder to just see the humanity in each other. And I'm not here to say that any one side isn't doing awful or wonderful things for the world. What I am here to say is that it seems like we're busier fighting than we are actually addressing the things that need addressing. And I would love if we could put our energy literally towards working on the issues we care about, towards making the world better for whoever, whatever group, whatever humanity, whatever anything we're trying to help as opposed to spending our time dunking on each other on social media and talking about how awful the other side is, whatever that other side might be. I feel like we're wasting our energy fighting when we could be doing the things that we're actually caring enough to fight about. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. The Creative Process is produced by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Additional production support by Sophie Garnier. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you'd like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thanks for listening. Thank you.